Well, last week, Pastor Micah told us about Jesus' triumphal parade into Jerusalem and how people saw Jesus differently. Some, of course, saw the, the triumphal entry and saw Jesus as a disruption and uh, kind of challenging the status quo. And others saw Jesus as the deliverer. Um, he's our great hope. What can you do for me today, Jesus? And others saw Jesus as a consultant. You know, he says all these things, and I'm going to pick and choose which uh, things that he's telling me that I want to follow. And uh, truly, the ones who saw Jesus clearest understood that he really is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He was disruptive, that he was coming in all humility. Um, he is the Word of God. And if you step back and kind of look at the larger picture, God created the world, and Jesus was part of that, and he is Lord of the universe. He's the Lord over nature. And God gave people free choice so they could choose to worship him or not, and he really hopes that they do and wants a love relationship. But people chose poorly, and sin entered the world. So God continued to reach out in wanting a relationship, reached out to people like Abraham or to Moses, and then God inspired people to write down um, his word so that people would know how to live to please God. And even in his word to Moses, God gave very specific guidance how to build uh, a, a home for God, a, a tabernacle, God's house, and who would be priests to serve in, in that house before the Lord. The point was that God wanted to live among his people. He wanted to be with them. And then God sent Jesus to live and to teach people uh, God's word and to call people to repentance. And uh, then it was God's plan that Jesus would die as a, a, an atoning sacrifice for the sin of the whole world, for yours and for mine and for everybody else. And that is why Jesus is headed to Jerusalem when we pick up the story in Matthew 21. He is going for the Passover, yes, but he is going knowing and having warned his disciples in advance, I'm going to be put to death there so that uh, I can atone for human sin. And he, Jesus is coming to his own people as their Savior, as their King, and as their Lord. He has all authority as God, and yet he doesn't insist on it at that day. And he, he came to earth as the person he lived in a human body. He was fully God even then, uh, that he was king of kings, lord of lords, but he came to suffer and to die. So he's inviting people to believe in him, follow him, love him, put him in charge in their lives, and he's giving them opportunity after opportunity to turn and to repent uh, from their own sin and their own rebellion and to instead choose to put him in charge and follow him. So when he returns at the end of the world, Jesus won't be riding in on a donkey ready to suffer for us. He will be riding in on a white horse, coming as the conquering king. And that, a little glimpse of that is found in the book of Revelation. If you hold your place in Matthew and flip to Revelation 19, which is almost at the very end of the book, Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So when Jesus comes in his glory like that, as king of kings, it will be too late for anyone to change their minds and to ask for God's forgiveness. 
It's like if you were in school and the teacher's instructing and teaching and teaching and teaching, finally says, okay, now we're going to take a test. Hands out a test, and you're taking the test, and you have time to make up your mind or even change your mind on certain answers. And the teacher, if he or she chose to, could actually give you some clues or could even walk up and down and look over your shoulder, and if you didn't get something right, could whisper the right answer in your ear if they wanted to. But... And then you'd have to choose. Do I agree with what the teacher's saying or not? Does it change what I have on my paper? But once the test is over and the teacher says, time's up, put down your pencils, turn in your work, it's over. At that point, the teacher becomes the judge who takes your answers as your final answers. So Jesus is coming to Jerusalem this final time, giving off as many big clues as he can that he is the Messiah that he is God, that he is the sacrifice, that he wants people to turn and follow God with all their hearts. And he rides in on a donkey that day. That fulfills a big prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 that says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah wrote that more than 500 years before Jesus showed up on the earth. Jesus goes on into the temple where every person there is there to celebrate the Passover and they would end up spending a moment with God and they would ask for God's forgiveness and they would offer gifts to God and Jesus was appalled at what he found in the temple. Here it was designed by him, by God, and is given as a place to meet God. But what he saw going on there was absolutely atrocious. The temple, if you get into the design, there's a court of the Gentiles that the Gentiles can't go any further. And then there's a court of the women. Women can't go any further. Then there's a sanctuary. And then there's actually a holy place where only the priests can go. And then there's the Holy of Holies where only the high priest can go one day a year to atone for sin. So this court of the Gentiles, most of us wouldn't be able to go any further than that into the court of the Gentiles. And it would be if we were going to worship there, that's where we would have stood to worship God. So instead, it's turned into a market day. I mean, this is a flea market. You've got traders and merchants and people haggling out prices and, and yelling about things about their, uh, their wares, and they've inflated the prices. They're making great profits. And the people who are arriving, the pilgrims, have traveled a long ways to come, and they're supposed to bring uh, a, a, some kind of bird or animal to sacrifice. Well, those don't travel all that well, and so they would have purchased them on their arrival in Jerusalem. And this didn't have to be happening in the temple area. It was just there for convenience. So God had given the temple as a place to meet God. And there's all this cacophony. And he also gave guidance, like the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Or in Micah 6, 8, the prophet said, What does God, oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That was not happening in the temple as Jesus observed it. He arrives there with this large crowd that are celebrating him, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he enters the temple into the court of the Gentiles. And instead of worship, there is all this hubbub. There's animals and there's 
there, there's noise and there's yelling and there's people being gouged in the name of God. And Jesus becomes angry in a righteous way. Matthew 21, 12 says he entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. All four gospel writers tell this story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell how Jesus is incensed by the graft and greed and uh, people taking advantage of other people, and he overturns the tables and pushes out the animals, loudly shows his displeasure, speaks for God that this is wrong and that God is displeased. God's house has become a robber's den. Now, John tells the same story, but it's interesting. Instead of right before Jesus' death, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he puts it in the first time that Jesus goes to Jerusalem uh, as, uh, in doing, when he's doing his ministry. So did Jesus do this twice, two years apart? Well, he could have. If so, only the bystanders would have changed I mean, and learned from it. I mean, if, if you're one of the merchants and you ignored Jesus' condemnation the first time, then probably after Jesus left, you'd go back to business as usual and just ignore his warnings. Jesus has this righteous anger, this righteous indignation, because people are so far out of bounds that he has to say something. He has to do something. I mean, Psalm 69.9 says, zeal for your house will consume me. There was a story last year in the news of a guy that was driving in a construction zone on the freeway in a city. And this construction zone was marked 55 miles an hour. He was doing 130 when they stopped him, right through the construction. And uh, the policeman pulls him over, asks for his driver's license and registration. And while the policeman's looking it over, just before he starts writing, the man says to him, say, could you give me just a warning instead of a ticket? The policeman was already so irritated that this guy had put everybody's lives in danger, all the construction people and anybody else out on the road, that he said, yes, I'll show you a warning. Here's really what you deserve. Get out of the car, please. Turn around. Put cuffs on and put him in the police car, took him to prison. It's really what he deserved. Fortunately from God, we don't get what we deserve when we turn to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. So Jesus, the Bible says, be angry and do not sin. And the things usually that get us angry are things where our feelings got hurt or we were disappointed or something about us. Jesus gives such a great example. He is consumed with anger because God was being ignored in God's house. God's name is being taken in vain. And he says to them, verse 13, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer and you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus, the Lord of glory, the architect of the building they're in, the builder of the temple, comes to the temple looking for righteousness, honesty, purity, genuine caring of people for other people in their pursuit of God. And instead he finds graft and greed and lying and cheating and stealing. And he becomes angry. See, by calling the temple my house, he's also giving another big clue. He's revealing, I am God. Then verse 14 says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, the, Matthew's had a lot of healing stories of Jesus, but this is the last time that he heals people. And it's done in a very public place. D.A. Carson in his commentary said, most Jewish authorities forbade any person, lame, blind, deaf, or mute, from offering a sacrifice or from appearing before Yahweh in the temple. 
But Jesus healed them, showing that one greater than the temple is here. Jesus has this power to do miracles. It's a power that only God would have, to give sight to the blind, to make the lame leap and dance and run and walk. It's proof that Jesus is the promised one. In fact, do you remember when John the Baptist, uh, after he was arrested and put in prison, he had been saying, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. He had recognized Jesus. He baptized Jesus. That's the picture that we have up here. But after he's put in prison, he gets discouraged and he's uh, reaching despair. And he sends some of his followers to Jesus to ask him the question, are you the one who's going to come, the promised one, or should we look for another? Jesus said this in reply. He said, go tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. See, Jesus has taken this healing power. He's put it on display for the glory of God right in the temple, right during Passover week when most people would see it. He wants everybody to see and to sense God's call that they respond in repentance and in faith and recognize that he is is the Lord. The children saw it. They responded appropriately. The religious leaders who had already hardened their hearts against Jesus... This only galvanized their resistance and their criticism. Look at verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? Like, tell those children to be quiet. Children are supposed to be seen and not heard. Well, the children are copying and yelling what they have heard the adults yelling out on the triumphal entry when Jesus was riding on the donkey and the crowds were all cheering and putting down palm branches and their robes in in the road to honor him. So the children are copying what they learned from their parents. They're quoting the adults. And this statement is also the statement, uh, the belief that Jesus has the credentials as the son of David to be their king. Look for a moment at the hardness of the hearts of the chief priests and the scribes. They're spiritually blind, and they are objecting to the praises of children for Jesus right after they have seen miracle after miracle in the temple. But they had no objections for the merchants and the mercenaries turning their temple into a market. Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus says to them, well, yes, have you never read And I think Jesus is kind of putting it back at them right there a little bit because these are the people who have memorized the whole uh, Old Testament. They know every word. So they've memorized Psalm 8. So when he says, well, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Well, Jesus is quoting Psalm 8, verse 2 right there. But, and you might not have memorized Psalm 8, so you don't remember that verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you've prepared praise. So Jesus says, yes, I hear the children. They are praising God. I not only hear it, I planted those praises in their precious little hearts. And I wish that you would offer your heart, which is hardened, I wish it would break. And that you would kneel and invite me in as your Savior and Lord, just like the children. At our house, not when it's just Ty and Cindy, but I mean, I guess we could. We haven't thought of it. But when the family gathers, before we eat, we'll, we'll pray a prayer that starts with a song. 
Be present at our table, Lord. Be here and everywhere adored. These morsels bless and grant that we may feast in fellowship with thee. Now, you might have heard a version of that. Uh, I got it from my parents. They didn't make it up. I finally went and Googled it, looked it up, and sure enough, a guy named John Sinek, who was a Methodist evangelist, wrote that in 1741. So a few words may have changed along the way, but it's a prayer asking God to be present among us. Actually, it's a reminder to us in our prayer that God is present everywhere, and it's asking God to bless our food, and it's reminding us that heaven is ahead for all eternity. So we've prayed this prayer every time we've got the larger family together. Well, recently, you know, when we say, okay, it's time to eat, let's gather around the table and try to get everybody there, there's two little boys that are two years old that get put into high chairs, and before everybody else is even in their chairs, one of them will go, be present they only know about two words. But everybody dashes to grab hands to keep the prayer going. At our table, Lord. You know, to say, hey, you are starting to lead us in prayer. I mean, two words from two two-year-olds. Be present. It's a lot of fun. And out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Now, what do you think glorifies God more? A huge choir in fancy robes singing great introits in four-part harmonies, and I'm not picking on your choir, with pomp and circumstance, with congregation that stands and sits on cue and prays well and, and says well done at the end, and with a pastor who prays long prayers and, and they all have sin in their lives and hardness in their hearts, or the sincere praise of a two-year-old putting two words together like, be present. I mean, it's amazing how quickly a child can receive and understand and accept and share God's truth more quickly than those of us who think of ourselves as schooled and sophisticated and wise and knowledgeable, but we're spiritually hardened or we're, or we're spiritually dead. It's kind of a warning to all of us to say we need to come like children before God and ask for His forgiveness and give Him our hearts and celebrate him in praise. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord. Verse 17 says that leaving them, he went out to the city in Bethany and he lodged there. Now, Bethany was about two miles away. It was back up across the valley, Kidron Valley, up uh, on the top of Mount of Olives. And it's where his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. Remember, he had raised Lazarus from the dead just a week before this. And so that was a well-known event. And it also was where uh, a guy named Simon, he's called Simon the leper, but I'm sure Jesus healed him had a banquet where Jesus was there when Mary came and anointed Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. That also happened in Bethany. So Bethany was a place for Jesus of rest and of friends and of refreshment. So if we review just this portion, Jesus came to the temple looking for righteousness, but he found none. And he gave a bit of judgment, more like a warning. Well, then if you look uh, you know, at the next section, it kind of a preview, Jesus comes to a fig tree looking for fruitfulness. And he found none. As God the creator, he gave fruit trees the job to be fruitful. Just as he expects his people that he's called to himself to stay connected to him and to live lives that are fruitful. Verse 21, Matthew 21, 18 says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it looking for something to eat. My parents had a fig tree in their backyard, and I was kind of proud of the fact that in 30 years, I never ate one. They just 
didn't look, you know what I'm saying? I, anyway, but as I understand from people who have or talked about figs, when you can see a fig tree even from a distance, if the leaves look full grown, it's a clue, there's fruit. So Jesus goes to this tree that he expects there to be fruit, even though he was probably a little early in the season, and he goes looking for it and he finds no fruit. He only finds leaves. Now, can you see the similarity of this picture Jesus is putting there in front of his disciples? Here's a fruit tree. He's comparing them really to a fruit tree, and he's looking, and here's a tree that's got all the leaves. It looks leafy and healthy, and it should be ready to eat figgy, full of figs, but on closer inspection, it's barren. It just looks good. It's just looking the part, but there's no fruit. It's like a person trying to look righteous and productive and fruitful, but in fact, there's no real spiritual fruit. It's a lesson and it's a warning to all of us. Now, fruit trees and vineyards in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, are a sign of peace and prosperity and blessing from God. There's a, if, you, if you Googled uh, vine and figs in, in a Bible dictionary, you would find this all over the place, lots of different verses about it. And in fact, Zechariah 3.10 says, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come sit under his vine and under his fig tree. It was a place of shade and peace. It signaled prosperity. There's comfort sitting in the cool nest under the tree, and there's nourishment from this delicious, sweet, ripe fruit. At least I'm guessing. What if it doesn't turn out that way? In Isaiah 5, there's a story where the prophet says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And it goes on verse after verse talking how much preparation went into getting the hill just right and the watering and the fertilizer and the vines and all the investment and, and time and effort that went into it. And then you get to verse four. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? I mean, this is God's anguish. He's heartbroken. He loves so much, and he gives us so much, and he's done so much, and he wants us to respond in faith and in obedience and in fruitfulness, and he's brokenhearted when we go our own wild way or we remain unfaithful. Jesus told this similar story in Luke 9, or Luke 13, in a parable. He says, he told him this parable. A man had a fig tree that he planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this one year also. I will dig around it, and I will fertilize it. And then if I should, it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So the owner and the gardener wait patiently, but still expectantly. The owner will wait one more year, but he will not wait forever. And this is a picture of God planting in our lives and expecting and looking for fruitfulness. Jesus comes to the fruit tree, the fig tree, looking for fruitfulness. He found none, and he withered the tree with a word. And this is a warning to his followers, stay connected, be fruitful. Do not become like this tree, looking green, looking good, but bearing no fruit. Is there fruit in your life for Jesus Christ? Jesus said to the tree, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. It looked good, but it's fruitless. It gave promise of something to eat, but it produced nothing. Genuine faith 
bears fruit. Genuine faith bears fruit. If you look back at your life over the last year and you say, what do I have? If Jesus were to say to me, what fruit is there in your life? What demonstration that I'm alive and well in your heart? What would you say? Part of my job is to help get you ready for that moment. If you're a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, there will be fruit. What's the proof? What are the ways that we bear fruit? So I went looking in Scripture for that, came up with the Scripture that we've read numerous times, even this year, Acts 2, verse 42. The Holy Spirit has just been poured out. People have repented. They've asked Christ to come into their life, forgive their sin, and to be in charge. And then it says, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's God's Word. They regularly found themselves in God's Word. And to the fellowship. They were connecting with other believers in meaningful ways. To the breaking of bread. That was outward shared faith. And with the prayers, that's private internal faith. And awe came upon all of them. A sense of wonder. God is great and he's doing things in this world. And I'm along for the ride. I am following what he's going to show me. And I'm following in obedience. And many wonders and signs, those are miracles, were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together had everything in common. They were caring about others. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They're practicing generosity. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they're sharing life together. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a great picture of the kind of people that we want to be. What are the grace-filled ways Jesus wants to help us bear fruit? We just read it. So if this was an open book test, go back and look. They're connected to other people. They're in God's word. Believers are sharing in meaningful ways. They have an outward faith that other people can see. They have an inward private faith with Jesus. They have a sense of wonder and awe that God is at work. He, they're seeing miracles happen. They're caring about others. They're practicing generosity. They're practicing life together. And they're watching God see things grow. Look what God's Spirit produced in the first believers. Do you know that they didn't know anything about church? They'd never heard the word. Do you know they didn't know anything about the New Testament? None of it had been written yet. And yet they know Jesus and they have let their lives be directed by the power of God. They were bold. They were fearless. They were focused. And they were taking the gospel places. What are the obstacles to bearing fruit for people like us? Well, we get in a rut we get so busy with our to-dos. Look back over the last week. How many to-dos did you do that you had to do? How many to-dos did you do that you just said, I just like to do that? I find that I waste too much time doing things that have no eternal consequence. And we get ourselves too busy doing stuff that doesn't really matter. Or we're too fearful. What will people say? What will they think? What will they say behind my back? What if they laugh? What if they ostracize? What if they accuse me because I love Jesus? You know, that's small potatoes to India. Deepak didn't really tell us this, but the new law is if you convert someone to Christianity, you could go to prison for 30 years. And yet the church there is growing like a weed. Maybe we need a little fear on the other side. The other side being someday we're going to stand before Jesus face to face to review our life. And when he comes looking at your life or mine, will he find fruit among all the leaves? Will Christ be pleased? That's our goal. 
The Bible has a prayer, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, that we could make wise choices. The disciples saw the fig tree withered and they marveled and they basically saw it. That's our prayer. Lord, open our eyes. And Jesus said, truly I say, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but it, you will say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. It will happen. Have faith and do not doubt. Stay connected to the vine is the picture that Jesus gives in John. If you stay connected, you're the branches. He's the vine. We're the branches. Stay connected. You'll bear fruit. Do you know, if you were to go to Hawaii, you're not allowed to take certain fruits from anywhere else. And so you get there, and there's a place where you can discard those before you go, and then there's actually, as you go, there's one last door. You can't return, and there's a box, an amnesty box right there. It says, okay, you can put anything here that you know you shouldn't be bringing into our state. And if you leave it there, you're fine. If you take it with you and you're caught, you had your warning after warning. You had your last chance. What if today was your last chance to do the right thing? What if this was your last Sunday in church and you didn't know it? And Jesus is calling you and me. He went to Jerusalem that year proving that he's God, fulfilling scripture, calling people to righteousness and repentance. He proved he was Lord of the temple. He proved he was the Lord over creation. Today could be your last chance. So it's time to think seriously about these things and to say, God, I want you in charge in my life. That's why Jesus came and offered his life. In fact, that's what we're going to celebrate and commemorate in the, what we call communion, remembering Jesus' great sacrifice for us and receiving it ourselves. Let's not have it just be going through the motions. Let's give him our whole heart. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, open our eyes. We want to see Jesus. And we want to see how Jesus sees we want to think like Jesus thinks. We want to respond like Jesus would respond. We want to be fully devoted followers. Thank you for offering your body and your, your blood was poured out for us. May it not be in vain. May what you have planted in our hearts flourish, bloom, and bear fruit. Amen. <laughs>